How y'all doing? Y'all all right? Good, 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 man. Yesterday was National North Carolina Day. Did you know that? Amen. You didn't even know that was a thing, did you? Just one more proof that North Carolina is the greatest state in the union. I know some of you think I'm standing between you and lunch. <laughs> Truth is, you're standing between me and lunch. <laughs> I've got a date with Goodberries, uh, just a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm here this year under house arrest. My wife said she was giving me a, a watch for my birthday, one of these little Apple watch things. And uh, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> so it was a surprise, it was a puzzle, until I realized that she had loaded a lot of apps on this thing. Apps that do stuff like buzz every hour and say, stand up for a minute. <laughs> apps that say things like, breathe. <laughs> like I would forget that, right? I realized it wasn't a watch, it's a tracker. <laughs> Just a fancier version of a wrist, uh, uh, ankle bracelet thing, you know? <laughs> this morning, the note said, congratulations, you have reached your personal exercise goal. It said I exercised for 21 minutes. That must have been while I was eating. Speaking of which, I have a couple of thank yous. Uh, there's a sister here at the conference this year. I, I don't know that I've actually shaken her hand or seen her. I don't know her real name. I know her only by her Twitter handle, which is Hit That Chicken. <laughs> which already endears her to me. I mean, you know. <laughs> she baked cakes for the speakers, right? And I'm, I'm wearing mine. <laughs> And I want to thank my brother Jeff and Lindsay Wenzel from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Despite the, the hurricane and the damage that has um, affected that area and other areas in eastern North Carolina, uh, they've come down as they have every year for the last five or six years, and they brought six pounds of North Carolina barbecue. And uh, yeah, we gathered with them and had barbecue and fellowship uh, last night, and I'm, I'm wearing that too. There's no need to come to North Carolina if you don't get barbecue. And yes, Andy, I mean real barbecue, not that Texas brisket stuff. <laughs> no. As you know, the Texans always get defensive, but they sent us two short Texans this year, so I'm not worried. <laughs> I, I really want to give this 45 minutes to Chuck Lawless, which incidentally is the greatest preacher name ever, Chuck Lawless, right? <laughs> I, I really want to give him another 45 minutes to keep teaching me about prayer. Um, I suspect this is the most prayed for sermon in the conference right now following that message, and, um, and yet we can't pray enough. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Help us, Lord. Help us to hear your word. 
And through hearing your word, see what you see. See the way you see. The fields are white for harvest. The laborers are few. And the necessity of praying that you, the Lord of the harvest, would send laborers. Help us to see the role that you have called us to play, whether we go or whether we support. Help us, O Lord, to lay hold to your word with believing hearts, obedient hearts. And if, Lord, for some reason we are not desperate to hear your voice right now, make us desperate that we're not desperate. Convict us. Shake us, for we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So from your mouth to our ears, Lord, give us wisdom, give us faith, give us zeal according to knowledge, and help us to live as your people in a perishing world and to hold forth the truth that saves. Do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Betsy Stockton was born in 1798. She was born a slave, and as a little girl, she was given by Mr. Stockton to his daughter on the occasion of her marriage to a Reverend Ashbel Green. Ashbel Green was the president at the time of the College of New Jersey, later to become Princeton. She was, by all accounts, as a young girl, well, difficult, a bit rebellious, until a revival broke out in Princeton in 1816, 1817, when she was converted and came to, the faith, came to faith in the Lord, and, and all of her sort of rebellious years were turned into sort of fruitful, zealous, hungry, yearning for the Lord. She was marked by a pronounced understanding of the, of the scriptures. She learned in Reverend Green's home to read and write and to do mathematics. Uh, she began to feel a call to mission. She wanted to go to Africa, to take the gospel to Africa. But during 1816, 17, a young man in Princeton felt a call to go to Hawaii and um, Betsy Stockton was convinced to go to Hawaii rather than to Africa as she had intended. When she was converted in 1817, a couple of years later, she was freed from slavery, um, a practice that was rarely maintained in the States at the time. But because she was being recognized by Reverend Green as a, as a sister in the Lord, she was, she was freed, given her freedom, and she stayed on there in his employment for a number of years until they leave, in fact, to go to Hawaii. The question is, how does a young woman born in slavery convert to faith in Christ while enslaved wind up on the mission field taking the gospel to a people, not as a domestic servant, but as a worker in the gospel. Well, in her case, it was because the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions contributed significantly to her expenses to go. Also, the Green family, whom she had served, supported her financially. 
And she had saved her meager wages as a domestic helper to contribute her portion to go as well. It was because people had a sense of the greatness and the glory of God and the need of people who did not know God is because they had that sense of God's greatness and people's need, and they were motivated by that greatness and people's needs to give to the work of missions that Betsy Stockton and the entire team were able to take the gospel to what was then called the Sandwich Islands. Again, a place where I would really love to live. <laughs> the letter of 3 John is a letter that I think is instructive for the question of how do we support those who go out from among us to take the gospel to those who do not know Jesus. And we have one thought from this text, John, 3 John verses 5 to 8 is what we'll be thinking primarily. If we have one thought to this text that should govern how we support and how we give, it, it'd be simply this. Give to missionaries like God is worth it. We should give to missionaries like our God is worth it. And you say, what does that look like? Well, we'll divide the talk into two points. Giving to missionaries like God is worth it looks like, number one, faithful hospitality to missionaries when they're on furlough, when they're with us. You see that in verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. And then it looks like righteous generosity when they go out from among us to the field. So faithful hospitality when they're with us, righteous generosity when they depart. Third John, beginning in verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. See, the first part of those verses there, verses 5 and 6, this is where we see that uh, support should look like faithful hospitality when, when missionaries are on furlough, when they're with us. And we see this in the example of the, the sort of recipient of this letter, in the example of a man named Gaius. John writes to him in verse 5, says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. These brothers are traveling missionaries who, who pass through Gaius' area. These men, as we see a little bit later in verse 8, are workers for the truth. I love that phrase. They spread the gospel beyond the natural borders of family and kin and nation to the ends of the earth. They, they probably arrived with a letter of introduction, which would have been the custom at the time. And the expectation in that culture and the expectation among Christians is that they would have been shown hospitality. They would have been received and cared for and looked after. Now, see how important that is. I think it's helpful to sort of see the negative example that John points to in this very letter. Because in verse 9, he goes on to talk about a man named Diotrephes. Look with me in verse 9. I've written something to the church 
But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Verse 9 is staggering. Now, I believe we have all of the Scripture that God intended us to have. We have a completed canon, nothing missing, but isn't it staggering to think that an apostle had penned a letter to the churches that this man refused to give to the churches? We don't have something from John's own pen and thought because of this man, Diotrephes. And and notice what he's like. Diotrephes is self-promoting. See there, he likes to put himself first. He wants to be preeminent in the church. The word that's used there is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 1 when he talks about the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is above all things. Diotrephes, it seems, wants to be in the place of Christ. He wants to be first. Not only is he self-promoting, but he's slanderous. I love that phrase there when John says, talking wicked nonsense about us. I think John flexed at that point. And not only is he slanderous, but he's, he's notice he is, he's stingy. Not content with that, not content to talk wicked nonsense about the apostles, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. This man's a hot mess. He's not going to serve the brothers. He don't want you to serve the brothers. He don't even want the brothers at the church. Some of you all know this deacon. (laughs) I wonder how many churches have diatrophies for a pastor. Oh, I don't mean they're as flagrant as all of this. But when churches are busy designing promotional materials aimed at making themselves distinctive, not from the world, but from neighboring churches... It's fair to ask if they might not be self-promoting, putting themselves first, wanting a name for their church. Or when liberal churches ridicule and reject the Scripture, but also when Bible-believing churches set the Bible aside as insufficient or strategically antiquated. It's fair to ask if we don't slander the apostles' teachings in that way. Or when churches turn inward, focusing only on their needs and perhaps the needs of their immediate community, it's fair to ask if they aren't selfishly seeking their own good while refusing to pursue the Great Commission, to support those who do the work. I wonder if there aren't churches who, though inconspicuous next to diatrophies, aren't in effect guilty of the same mission-stifling attitudes. But let us beware in ourselves and let us teach our people to watch in themselves any tendency toward self-promotion and selfishness that would innervate the gospel missions and zeal. Now, it's against that backdrop that I think we see really the, the beauty of Gaius's life. Come back with me to verses 5 and 6. 
considered a positive example of Gaius' hospitality. Number one, Gaius is faithful. Verse five, it is a faithful thing you do. Gaius was, in other words, loyal or true to God's mission and God's church and the workers that God had sent out to make the gospel known. He was constant and committed to God's plan for the church. And Gaius is tireless. You see that there? It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. He didn't just give at the office and call it a day. You get the sense that his home was at the disposal of these brothers. Nothing he had was off limits to them, and there was nothing he would not then do for them. And Gaius is loving. Notice he does this for these brothers, strangers though they are. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Brothers and strangers. Gaius apparently didn't know them personally, yet he treated them like family. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel, beloved. It makes strangers siblings. Everyone in Christ is related to everyone else in Christ. So the obligations of family and hospitality fall to us, especially for brothers, strangers who serve the gospel, those traveling missionaries and evangelists who take the gospel to other places. And that very hospitality is an expression of love. Notice there, the brothers testified of Gaius's love before the churches. One commentator put it this way, Gaius had put himself out He had suffered inconvenience to his home. His daily routine was disturbed by visitors. His family was rearranged for the sake of furthering the gospel. All this cost Gaius something. It's not the sort of Christian work that receives much applause. It's not like performing miracles or leading the singing. Yet Scripture does not belittle it. In fact, what I want to suggest to you that pastorally what, Paul, what John is doing is elevating, calling guys by name, holding them up as an example of selfless and faithful hospitality and service to the gospel by serving these people. As we think about guys' hospitality, these workers on furlough, we, might, we ought not miss this fact, beloved, that living rooms change the world more constantly and effectively than boardrooms. It may be tempting to think that not much of consequence happens in our living rooms. We may be tempted to think that we can't even keep our living rooms clean, much less change the world in them. We can think of the pressures and inconveniences of of hosting missionaries or having people in our homes, the the ways the routines with the children are interrupted, or the fact that we have so much going on with the children that to add the care of other adults just seems overwhelming to a, a mom or a dad. And so we're tempted to think that our living rooms are not of much consequence. But church history teaches us that the modern mission movement literally began in a living room. October 1972. Excuse me, 1792. A little dyslexic there. A small group of Christians met in the home of a pastor named Andrew Fuller. They met at a time when most of the Christian world seemed dispassionate or uninterested in evangelism at home and abroad. 
And that small group of men wondered what might be done to reach the millions of people who did not have the gospel in their tongues and in their lands. Two others present in that living room were John Ryland and William Carey. Ryland records the scene where Carey agreed to go to India with these words. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mind, which had never before been explored. We had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that we, while we lived, should never let go of the rope. You understand me? There was great responsibility attached to us who began the business. Those men formed the Baptist Missionary Society. The following year, 1793, Carey was sent to India where he served as a missionary until his death in 1834. And for 21 years, back in merry old England, Andrew Fuller served as the leader of this new missionary society, raising funds, writing periodicals, recruiting missionaries, and sending personal letters to those on the front lines. Another way one writer put it, he says, he fulfilled his promise to the great missionary William Carey, who, upon his trip to the unknown world of India, looked at the small band of brothers around him and said, as it were, well, I, well, I, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. Andrew Fuller held the rope. Suffering the loss of his wife and eight of, their, eight of their 11 children, Fuller persevered in the midst of severe affliction and overwhelming responsibilities. He longed for unreached peoples to hear the gospel and championed the important but often overlooked foundation of doctrinal clarity. So, we're asking people to go into the pit, into the warfare that our brother Chuck Lawless talked about to the darkness of the world, and we are sending them, and we ought to support them by holding the rope. Pastors, consider John's pastoral approach in this letter. Think about how he sandwiches the negative example between the positive example of Gaius on the front end and of Demetrius in verse 12. It's an instructive example for how we encourage mission support in the congregation. Brothers, wrap your hammers in pillows. Don't beat your people up as much as you stir them up with positive example. For every negative thing that you perhaps notice that may not be happening in your congregation, give two or three positive things that are happening. And the pastors who are all negative and not disproportionately positive, essentially teach their people what to avoid rather than what to do. They create a Christian approach to missions that is essentially passive rather than active. Give twice as many positive examples as negative ones. And hold up ordinary faithfulness so ordinary people can join. 
The problem with telling stories about William Carey or Andrew Fuller is most Christians hear that and are inspired and think, well, I'm not them. The wonderful thing about Gaius' story is he just simply opened his home because he already had an open heart. And that every Christian in the pew can do, just to open their heart, to open their home, to share what they have, to encourage the brothers and to support them. So hold up not only positive examples, but hold up ordinary examples of faithful people in your congregation praying for missionaries, faithful people who have served on your missions committee for years perhaps, Uh, faithful Sunday school teachers who have integrated missions uh, thinking and praying for missionaries into their Sunday school curriculum. You, You likely, by God's grace, have many examples of things that you can begin to extol that feel really accessible and replicable to the entire congregation. Encourage your people. Build them up. Ask them to show hospitality, not according to what they don't have, but with what they do have. Let's be those kinds of people when our supported workers are with us. But number two, support looks like righteous generosity when the workers are on the field, when they depart from us. So look there at the second part of verse 6. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That phrase there, send them on a journey, translate a, a Greek word that becomes almost a technical term for missionary in the, in the early church. We say the word used in several places, Acts 15.3, Romans 15.24, 1 Corinthians 16.6 and 11, 2 Corinthians 1.16, Titus 3.13, which Mark pointed to yesterday. According to verse 6, we do well to send people to the field with our support. And specifically, notice, we do well to send them in a manner worthy of God. One commentator writes, this probably means to send them on their way in a manner befitting those who serve the living God. I think that's almost correct. I think the phrase more likely means send them on their way in a manner befitting not those who serve the living God, but in a manner fitting the living God himself. Seems to me God is the standard against which we measure our giving and our generosity. Not the worth of the missionary, but the worth of our God. We are to give in a manner worthy of God. Now let that sink in for a moment. What manner of sending support do you think is worthy of a God who gave his only son for your salvation? How much ought to be supplied and with what attitude? If who we have in view is a loving Father who sacrificed a righteous Son for our redemption. Perhaps the answer comes in a stanza from a familiar hymn. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our love, our life, our all. I once heard a pastor say, God commands us to give, not to get money out of our pockets, but to get idols out of our hearts. I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
And perhaps that idol-removing, God-worthy, active giving is best seen when we do all we can financially and in prayer and in other ways to support those who go out for the name. Do we have Martin Luther's attitude when he wrote, wealth is the smallest thing on earth, the least gift that God has bestowed on mankind? There's a paradox. Only when we regard wealth as the smallest thing and the least gift from God can we use wealth to show God's worth and glory among the nations. Jesus put it this way. You can't serve God and mammon. You'll love the one and hate the other. And so our wealth, our stewardship of our wealth is an opportunity to make a declaration over and over again in the greatest cause in the universe, spreading the glory of God among the nations. We make that declaration over and over again in giving to missions that God is worth more than I have. God is worth more than all that I own that God is the pearl of great price. And guess what? He may be shared with every beggar who needs to be saved. Do you view your wealth that way? As an opportunity to declare the worth of God in missions? And what does that look like? Sending missionaries like God is worth it. Verses 6 to 8, I think there are four things here, four four reasons for doing this that help us to know a little bit about what it looks like. Notice, first of all, in verse 7, the brothers go out for the sake of the name. These brothers who go want nothing more than to see that at the name of Jesus, every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How different they are from Diotrephes. Let's just call him D. How different they are from D, who, who likes to be first. No, they want the name of the Lord to be first. If they were alive today, they would be saying, I am second, or I'm a nobody. Christ is all. And they count it an honor to give their lives for the sake of the name. And second, we ought to do this because such workers accept nothing from the Gentiles. You see it there, the second part of verse 7? In other words, Christian missionaries are not to be dependent on the generosity of people who are not yet Christians. They could go like Paul as tent makers and supply their own need. But also like Paul, missionaries should not burden those they're trying to reach. And the way they are not to burden those they're trying to reach and the way they may be singly devoted to the advance of the gospel is if God's churches are generous in the support of those workers. It's a wonderful thing when missionaries are able to go to another land, another people, another culture, another language, and serve Christ there in the proclamation of the gospel without worry about whether or not they're going to be able to eat. Without the distraction of planning another trip back home and another round of 500 church visits to raise $200 a stop. And this is why I just want to reiterate again something we said on the panel. I think it would be good of us as churches to seek to perhaps support fewer missionaries at a much greater amount so that those missionaries can serve without distraction and discouragement, knowing that we have their back financially. They are to accept nothing from the Gentiles. The gospel is free. 
How wonderful it is to offer the, the free offer of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ to all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in him as the one who was crucified for their sins, buried and resurrected on the third day, and to let them know that that cost them nothing. It cost Christ everything. It is freely offered to them. They need only repent and believe and not have that message confused with an offering or confused as something being peddled. We enable our missionaries to keep that clarity by recognizing they depend upon God's people and we should give joyfully to it. And, and number three, notice, we should do this because it's what's right. Verse eight, therefore we ought to support people like these. I think that word ought is conveying a sense of moral responsibility. I, I don't think it's conveying a sense of options, uh, this would be a good choice, the way we sometimes use the word ought. I, I think he means that we are standing before God who is this purpose for the church to advance the gospel among the nations and who has graciously called some people into that purpose as those who go. I think he's saying now there is a corresponding ought, a corresponding moral responsibility that falls upon those of us who don't go to give radically, righteously, and generously in support of those who do go. Our missionaries have a legitimate moral claim on our money. Our missionaries have a legitimate moral claim on our money. We should act that way. And we should be glad about it. For this is one of the reasons God has entrusted us with this little wealth that he has given us. Well, there's a fourth thing to see here. We ought to do this because when we do this, we join them in the work of spreading the truth. There at the end of verse eight, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We didn't do an exposition of the entire letter, but if we did, we'd have to give some attention to the frequency with which this notion of truth appears in John's letter. Look back at verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is so repetitive in the letter of John. He seems to be suggesting that the entirety of the Christian life is not only this embracing of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, but it is this walking in the truth that corresponds with Jesus Christ. Christians are truth people. We are saved by the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We are saved by the truth that the gospel tells about us, that we are sinners undone, separated from God, worthy of his judgment, worthy of an eternity of his judgment in hell. But he has sent the son into the world to be righteousness for us. He has sent the son into the world to demonstrate true humanity. He sent his son into the world to atone for our sins on the cross. And the truth is, there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from the Son of God. And it's belief in that truth. It's accepting that truth in a way in which we rest our souls upon it and the hope of eternal life upon it that brings us to God. And that's not just something we believe and then walk away from. 
that truth shapes the rest of our life. So we love in the truth and we walk in the truth. We live in the truth. And it's a marvelous thing. It's, a, it's an exquisite privilege, really, that the same, that we get to be workers for the truth that worked to save us from hell. That truth which worked to save us, we now are in the employ of. We now serve. We now advance that it might continue that saving work around the world. Nothing could be sweeter than that. And so we ought to give to this cause so that we might join this cause, so that we might be partners together with those who go. I'm reminded of those sweet words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, where he's writing to that church, really a, a thank you letter, a support letter. He, he writes to them and he says in chapter 4, around verses 18 or so, that, that when he first began the work of the gospel, there was no church in Macedonia except them who, who partnered with him. And he opened that letter in chapter 1 by saying, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, why was he confident of that? He said, it's right for me to feel this way uh, about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers with me of grace, not only in my imprisonment, but also in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. As God is my witness, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. It's this bond that happens which Paul calls the affections of Christ. This sharing, this fellowshipping in the grace of Christ that happens between the missionary and those who send them when we send them in a manner worthy of God. We are united in love for Christ and his gospel, for each other, and for the people we hope to see reached. So, a question. As you think about how you personally support the work of missions, the missionaries of your local church, just a pulse check, would you say you do it in a manner worthy of God? While at Oxford, an incident changed John Wesley's perspective on money. He just pay finished paying for some pictures for his room one of the chambermaids came to his door. He says it was a cold winter day, and he noticed that she had nothing to protect her from that cold, from the elements, except a thin linen gown. He reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, but when he did that, he found out he didn't have enough money. He says immediately the thought struck him that the Lord was not pleased with the way he had spent his money. He asked himself, will thy master say, well done, good and faithful steward. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that in, his, in that year his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses were 28 pounds. So he had two pounds to give away. The next year the Lord doubled his income, but he still managed to live on 28 pounds. So he had 32 pounds to give away. 
In the third year, his income jumped again to 90 pounds. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them at 28 pounds and gave away 62. In the fourth year, he had 120 pounds. And just like all the years previous, he kept his expenses at 28 pounds, giving away 92. Even when his income reached 1,400 pounds sterling, he quickly and gave away the surplus money. One year, he did give himself a raise. He went from living on 28 pounds to 30 pounds. He gave away nearly 1,400 pounds that year. Wesley was afraid of laying up treasures on earth. So the money went out in charity as quickly as it came in. He says he never had more than 100 pounds at any given time. In 1744, Wesley wrote these words, When I die, if I leave behind me ten pounds, you and all mankind may bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. When he died in 1791, some 47 years later, the only money mentioned in his will were the miscellaneous coins found in his pockets and in his dresser drawers. The American dream says, get all you can, can all you get, then sit on your can. (laughs) John Wesley had a better dictum, I think. Get all you can without hurting your soul, your body, or your neighbor. So he's not advocating greed. Save all you can, cutting off every needless expense. Give all you can. Be glad to give and ready to distribute, laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that you may attain eternal life. Now, I would not bind your conscience to the example of Mr. Wesley, who was single and lived in a very different time. But his words call us, as the Scriptures do, to give as we purpose in our hearts to give cheerfully, to give sacrificially, to give readily and in faith, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We're not to give or to judge our giving by what others give or by what others have, and we do not. We're to give as God prospers us. So when it comes to our personal stewardship, here are four questions from Wesley that, that you might wish to consider. Number one, in spending this money, Am I acting like I own it, or am I acting like the Lord's trustee? In spending this money, am I acting like I own it, or am I acting like the Lord's trustee? Number two, what scripture requires me to spend this money in this way? What scripture requires me to spend this money in this way? Number three, can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? Can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? And number four, will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? Will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? What I love about those questions is they all presume that God is interested in what we're doing with the money he trusted us with. And and they direct our attention from our sort of creaturely wants to that great day 
of reward before God. So we view our funds with an eternal perspective personally. Now, I don't suspect that all of us should look the same way in terms of our personal giving and stewardship. Again, some of us have responsibilities that Mr. Wesley didn't have. But I wonder if this kind of thinking is guiding our stewardship. And if this kind of thinking is driving us toward generosity in support of missionaries so that we support them in a manner worthy of God. That's on a personal level. Well, what about a church level? Does this same kind of investment, is it reflected in our church budgets? Is it reflecting in the staffing of our churches? Let me ask you this question. Is your staff, is your church staff mainly for maintenance or missions? Well, don't get me wrong. To shepherd a congregation requires more than one man. Praise God for the plurality of elders. And those who do that work and do it well, the Bible says, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So I'm not advocating a stinginess toward what we might think of when we generally think of pastors as those who teach and and shepherd and care for the congregation. I'm simply asking, is in the staffing there a reflection, a prioritization of missions, of taking the gospel beyond your block to the four corners of the globe? How would we staff if we were staffed for missions? Or think about it in terms of ministry philosophy. Is ministry just something, or missions just something your church does? It's one program among a number of programs vying for attention? Or is missions sort of the umbrella over your church, the the sort of um, impetus that's shot through all that you're doing from children's ministry to evangelistic ministry to prayer and to the regular preaching of God's Word is, is this sense that we are a sent people, a, a people called to spread the gospel and to partner between those who go and those who give, is that reflected up and down and across the ministries of the church? Is it an ancillary or is it integral? So as we lead our churches, I think we want to lead our churches to recognize something that this text, I think, is somewhat implicit about. That missionary support is worship. Notice, whether giving, as in the case of Gaius, or going, in the case of the brothers, is all done for the glory of God. The brothers go out for the sake of the name. Gaius is to sin in a manner worthy of God. Both going and giving are acts of worship. They are intertwined. We give for the renown of God so that others may go for the knowledge of God, for the glory of God. It is the praise and majesty of God in Jesus Christ which motivates both goer and giver. That's why we partner. It's the two expressions of Christian worship, of Christian declaration that our God is worth it and others should have him. To what extent do we give and support in a manner worthy of God? As we leave here, may that be part of your conversation in the car ride home or on the plane. May that be part of the conversation you stoke with the congregation back home 
that you lift up positive, ordinary examples like Gaius and commend your people for their everyday acts of generosity in support of missions. And may we build up the local congregations we serve and stir up the local congregations we serve with greater zeal according to the knowledge that our God is worth it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the long line of witnesses. Some recorded in the annals of history like Betsy Stockton, John Wesley, Andrew Fuller, William Carey. But many never to be known by others, but known very intimately by you. We praise you for those who have made it possible for us this day to claim the name of Christ because they were not selfish with the gospel and they were not selfish with their resources, but gave in support of preaching pastors and church planting missionaries so that your gospel would be rooted and growing like a vine around the globe. And Lord, we do declare that we understand that your gospel was not meant to be preached until it reached us and then stopped but that we have a part in this relay to either go or to give. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful in whichever you call us to. Make us generous givers with a sense of gladness as we support those who go. And because our lives belong to you, if it's your will, pluck us up from our situation and send us to take the gospel to those who do not know. We pray that this would not be just another conference that we have attended and enjoyed, but we pray, O oh Lord, that having met with you over these two days, you would take this time and transform our prayer lives, transform our understanding of what you're doing in the world, transform, O oh Lord, the, our commitment to the gospel, heighten it, deepen it, widen it, and transform the ways in which we support those who go out for the sake of the name. Do it all for your glory. And do it for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.